This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send Send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash unplugged. That's wise.com slash unplugged. One more time, wise.com slash unplugged. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. In this episode, we're continuing our series on travelers and explorers, and we're going to begin by looking at the final stages of the Revolutionary War, specifically the year 1779. This was after a British Expeditionary Corps of 3,500 men from New York captured Savannah, Georgia, and French and Revolutionary forces tried to retake it. There were major operations in the South going on at this time. The rebels lacked the resources of the British military juggernaut, so they had to fight in the interior to stretch their enemy supply lines and wage a campaign of guerrilla warfare. The rebel navy's colonial warships were basically helpless to attack the massive British war vessels, and they couldn't do much more than hug the Atlantic coast and raid an occasional enemy vessel. That's why they depended on French naval support for any serious sea attack. But despite America's weak sea presence, Benjamin Franklin took great care to keep one British ship from harm. As the war continued on the continent, he sent a missive to the captains of the colonial warships at sea. He wrote that there was a captain of respectful stature who, through his exploration, benefited all mankind and shouldn't be bothered. This captain was to receive safe passage through American waters and even aid from an American vessel if necessary. Franklin so admired this British captain, whom he had never met, that he granted him an honorary passport from the United States. This captain was among the first British subject to receive such a distinction from the three-year-old nation. Here's what Franklin wrote. To all captains and commanders of armed ships acting by commission from the Congress of the United States of America. Gentlemen, a ship having been fitted out from England before the commencement of this war to make discoveries of new countries and unknown seas 
under the conduct of that most celebrated navigator, Captain Cook, an undertaking truly laudable in itself, as the increase of geographical knowledge facilitates the communication between distant nations, to this, therefore, most earnestly to recommend to every one of you that in case the said ship, which is now expected to be soon in the European seas on her return, should happen to fall into your hands, you would treat the said Captain Cook and his people with all civility and kindness, affording them, as common friends of mankind, all the assistance in your power, which they may happen to stand in need of. Well, Franklin held tremendous respect for James Cook, who in his lifetime had already joined the pantheon of famous English explorers such as Francis Drake and Walter Raleigh. By this time in Cook's career, he had circumnavigated the globe three times, discovered Australia and explored its western coast, mapped much of the South Pacific, and was even worshipped as a deity by Hawaiian natives. But Franklin held far more respect for Cook's contributions to natural philosophy than for his discoveries. Two botanists on his second voyage collected over 3,000 plant species and presented their findings to the Royal Society. His crew included several artists who documented the botanist's findings and completed 264 drawings. Cook even determined the cause of scurvy and implemented a diet for his crew of fresh produce. He didn't lose a single man to scurvy on his first voyage. This was an unprecedented accomplishment in naval exploration of the 18th century, and if you remember our episode on Ferdinand Magellan, the crew of his ships would have been very glad to have a captain who knew how to stop the scourge of scurvy. Cook's contributions to the science of geography were no less impressive. During the captain's 12 years of sailing around the Pacific, he gathered enough longitudinal measurements and depth soundings for mapmakers to produce accurate charts of the South Pacific for the first time. In fact, some of these maps, or their direct descendants, were still being used in the time of World War II in the battles in the Pacific on islands that few people had explored. Global sea travel would now be safe to nearly any location on the globe. By his work, the world had truly become interconnected. So Benjamin Franklin wasn't about to let such a man die as collateral damage in the Revolutionary War. But the captain never received his honorary passport from the United States. Unbeknown to Franklin, Cook had died a month before his missive was sent to colonial sea captains. The American statesman and scientist was likely disappointed when news reached him that the famed explorer's adventures had come to an end, but it would have pleased him to know that Cook met his end from islanders who mistook him to be a vengeful god. So as you can guess, in this episode on Travelers and Explorers, we're going to be looking at the life of Captain James Cook, who lived from 1728 to 1797. We're stepping forward a couple of centuries from the Age of Discovery, where much has happened since the period of Christopher Columbus and Ferdinand Magellan. Now, transatlantic voyages are becoming somewhat commonplace. Many sailors and many captains have circumnavigated the globe. But now it comes time to go beyond just long voyages and really fill in the blank parts of the map to understand what exists on the globe, what are islands that still haven't been discovered, what are new colonial outposts, and now it's time for different colonial powers to fill in these blank parts of the map so they can continue to enrich in their empires. That's what's happening at the end of the 18th century. Cook was born October 27, 1728, in a North Yorkshire village to a Scottish day laborer and Yorkshire-born mother. He grew up in the village of Martin at the bottom rung of English society in a small cottage built of mud known as a clay biggin. Young James received an informal education from a village schoolmistress who instructed him in basic literacy in exchange for his labors on her family farm. 
During his childhood, he taught himself astronomy and navigation, acquiring scraps of knowledge from the few books or well-traveled persons that passed through the village. At age 17, he took an apprenticeship as a shopkeeper and haberdasher. But he didn't enjoy this trade, and he didn't enjoy the rural life of the English village, which was located only 300 yards from the sea. Here he heard stories from sailors recalling their tours of duty, seeing strange new lands. And this piqued his interest. The self-made man became a sailor, which was one of the few career paths in 18th century England in which somebody from a humble background could see the world. Cook first went to sea at age 18. He worked for 10 years for a shipping firm that transported coal along England's east coast, navigating through its difficult shoreline of shifting shoals and small harbors. After several tours of duty, he completed his apprenticeship in 1749 and joined the Baltic trade in 1750. Here, he studied mathematics, navigation, and astronomy under the tutelage of John Walker, a local shipowner and friend of the shopkeeper to whom Cook had been apprenticed. He passed his master's examinations to qualify as navigator of a royal ship. His first commission was aboard trade ships in the cold Baltic Sea. Here, he became more adept at sailing, navigating icy waters similar to those he would experience in Alaska's Bering Strait. He earned numerous promotions over the years until Walker offered him command of a ship. But Cook turned it down when an opportunity arose to join the Royal Navy. It was a great time to join, as Britain was mired in warfare and desperate for every veteran seaman it could find. Both France and Britain were exploring Canada's lakes and harbors, frequently running into one another and fighting skirmishes. A call for naval enlistees went out through England. The 27-year-old joined the Royal Navy in 1755, skipping over the lower seaman ranks due to his years of naval experience. He joined the HMS Beagle and was given the position of master's mate, and within two years became master's mate of the HMS Pembroke. It's on this ship that he experienced his first transatlantic voyage. In 1758, the Pembroke sailed across the Atlantic to survey the St. Lawrence River and Seaway in the region of Quebec. Here, he sharpened his abilities as a mariner, navigator, and commander. Crew members and officers noted that his resolve to explore hadn't waned even after several years in the cold waters of the northern Atlantic. He wrote in his diary that he intended to go not only farther than any man has been before me, but as far as I think it is possible for a man to go. His attitude was ideal for a late 18th century explorer and for the British government's colonial apparatus, which used its powerful navy to explore and colonize land throughout the world and the way that a small island nation could set up a truly global empire. The Royal Navy tasked the sailors with mapping out Canada for reasons of exploration, but mostly for colonial competition, as England and France fought fiercely for control of Canada. During the voyage of the Pembroke, the crew surveyed land as the Seven Years' War raged on in the background, and they were often involved in battles themselves. In the first year of the voyage, he participated in the amphibious assault on the fortress of Louisbourg by the French. He also participated in the siege of Quebec City in the Battle of the Plains of Abraham in 1759. The Seven Years' War continued in 1763, during which time the crew chartered the gray-skied, fog-enveloped coastline of Newfoundland. This surveying journey and Cook's independent voyages in 1775 had the same goal, to discover the fabled Northwest Passage that connected the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans through the Arctic Ocean. The British Admiralty dispatched these voyages under the orders of the 1745 Act, which promised a 20,000-pound prize for whomever discovered the passage, and that's worth about £4 million today. The English have been attempting to cross a fabled passage ever since 1497, when Henry VII commissioned John Cabot to find a direct route to the Orient. 16th century explorers such as Martin Frobisher, 
Humphrey Gilbert, and John Davis similarly attempted to find a passage to the Pacific, reach the Spice Islands, and dominate global trade, much as Ferdinand Magellan had done, albeit successfully in the southern route. These voyages discovered bays and inlets of northern Canada, many of which still bear their names, but the passage eluded all of them. And it wouldn't be discovered until Roald Admanson did in the early 20th century, using the techniques of the Inuit and the types of shallow water ships that they had. So all that to say that these voyages of the 18th and 19th century to discover the Northwest Passage would all fail. Cook's journey to Canada marked the final years of the Age of Discovery. Explorers and cartographers had filled in much of the mysterious parts of the globe over the 250 years since Magellan's circumnavigation of the world. Ships could now circle the world with reasonable confidence of their latitude and longitude. Vessels were sufficiently well-built and their navigators competent enough to travel just about anywhere on the planet, provided the weather and the crews complied, which frequently didn't happen. Captains knew where to resupply their ships, where the friendly populations were, and where to trade with islanders who would help them out. Yet, large stretches of the globe still remain undiscovered. Entire cultures with alien customs and unknown languages populated unknown islands and continents throughout the Pacific. There were rumors of a massive southern continent called Terra Australis, or Southern Land, and this persisted among sailors and whalers. The idea had existed since Aristotle and Ptolemy postulated that the lands of the Northern Hemisphere should be balanced by land in the South, but there were only rumors and not based on any observation. The Dutch sought the southern continent in the early 1600s, but they couldn't find it. At that time, at least according to navigators and sailors, the sea still contained mysteries and terrifying unknown elements. As a result, sea monsters still adorned the edge of hand-drawn maps. Islands of cannibal tribes still occupied the Pacific. A ship captain could step off of his vessel onto an island in the South Sea and not know if the islanders would worship him or attack him. Cook experienced both, and in one case received both reactions by the same tribe. Cook's success as a cartographer and naval man during the Seven Years' War won him another survey mission aboard the Northumberland to explore the jagged coastlines throughout Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. He returned to England in 1762 after a five-year absence. His eye for adventure and success were temporarily distracted by Elizabeth Batts, a woman 14 years his junior with whom he had become enamored. She was the daughter of Samuel Batts, keeper of the Bell Inn, who had been one of Cook's mentors. They married during his brief stay in England. But their married life would mostly be marked by Cook's long absences at sea. He continued his surveying voyages in 1763 and 1764, in which he explored the northwest stretch, followed by the exploration of the south coast between the Burren Peninsula and Cape Dorset from 1765 to 1766. He and his crew located rocks and hidden dangers along the jagged Canadian shorelines, taking thousands of depth sounds and measurements of latitude and longitude, making cartographical sketches, and employing large-scale hydrographic surveys to use precise triangulation to determine the land outlines. With this data in hand, they produced the first accurate maps of Newfoundland's coasts. His attention to detail and ability to produce accurate maps in difficult conditions and ability to endure years at sea caught the attention of the Admiralty and the Royal Society. The Admiralty promoted him to the rank of lieutenant and chose him for an expedition to observe the transit of Venus across the sky in the South Seas and search for the existence of Terra Australis. His first voyage of 1768 to 1771 was a collaborative voyage under the control of the British Navy and the Royal Society. Cook's ship Endeavour set sail from Plymouth on August 26, 1768 with 90... <coughs> 
with 94 crew members. The sturdy ship, a Whitby Collier, had large storage holdings and a shallow draught. It was nimble enough to skim the shores of unknown lands, but large enough to endure months along the open waters of the Pacific. Cook brought with him an entire complement of scientists, observers, navigators, and translators. As a result, his journey represented the intellectual shift in Europe from the 16th century military voyages of Cortes and Magellan to the 18th century journeys of scientific oceanography. So the crews that you would find in the 16th century of criminals that were on Magellan's voyage or the mutineers of Cortes's were now gone. The Royal Society funded this journey, not a Spanish monarch eager to claim alien lands for himself. Unlike the conquistadors and adventurers of previous centuries who wanted wealth, conquest, and huge land estates, Cook was a more temperate man. He desired scientific inquiry and observation, not to claim land for himself and an entire continent for whatever monarch sponsored his voyage, although the indirect results were, of course, to expand the British Empire. His voyages benefited from oceanic technology unavailable to earlier sea explorers. Cook could document his findings with more detail and better attention to empirical data collection than others. This was due to the invention of the chronometer, an accurate clock that wasn't affected by waves or the motion of the seas, unlike the earlier, more fragile timekeeping devices. The 1735 invention gave sailors the exact time of day at sea, allowing them to determine their exact position in open waters by determining latitude, which was accomplished by star sightings and something that sailors could do way back to antiquity. But thanks to timekeeping devices and maps, they could now determine their longitude as well. Even small-time errors could cause massive miscalculations in global positioning, but this new invention solved the problem. The oceans and all their islands were ready to be charted. And just as a quick aside, timekeeping technology was around since the late Middle Ages, and you had clocks and even pocket watches in the 1500s and 1600s, but it's really not until the 18th century when they're really accurate in their own right and they don't have to be constantly reset. Throughout Cook's voyages, his botanists, Joseph Banks and Swedish student Daniel Solander, collected unique plant specimens, first from the South American continent. They attempted to gather samples at Rio de Janeiro during a brief stop in late 1768, but the Portuguese governor, Dom Antonio Rollum de Moria Tavari, refused permission for them to come ashore, along with anyone else on the crew except for those acquiring provisions. The two botanists snuck on shore anyway and collected specimens under the risk of imprisonment as smugglers or spies. The voyage continued to Tierra del Fuego, where the bitter cold killed two sailors. The expedition then sailed to Tahiti, arriving on April 13, 1769. Banks and Solander conducted the first extensive botanical study of Polynesia. They collected over 250 plant species, including the orchids Oberonia equitans and Liparis revoluta. Banks and Cook made for strange partners on the voyage. Cook was of low-born birth and had taught himself rudimentary subjects. He attained his position by hard work and determination, and he only gained the notice of his superior officers after a decade of labor and nondescript work on coal vessels that skirted England's coast and the icy Baltic Sea. He even stated in the published narrative of a second voyage, of which he assumed full authorial control, that the public must not expect from me the elegance of a fine writer or the plausibility of a professed bookmaker, but will, I hope, consider me as a plain man, zealously exerting himself in the service of his country, and determining to give the best account he is able of his proceedings. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. Every day, we rise, 
challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Banks, in contrast, was a landed gentleman, educated at Oxford, and trained in natural philosophy. He was a rich man who had inherited his estate by the age of 25 when he joined the expedition. The self-funded researcher brought along a full complement of assistants and footmen. He introduced to the Western world the eucalyptus and an entire genus of plants eventually named after him, Banksia. Today, 80 species of plants are named after him. Cook's and Banks' opposing qualities resembled the dynamic between the plebeian captain, Jack Aubrey, and the patrician naval surgeon, Stephen Maturin, in the Patrick O'Brien series Master and Commander, upon which the 2003 Russell Crowe film is based. Yet their friendship brought out unique qualities in each other. Journalist Tony Horowitz, who in 2002 retraced Cook's journey and looked for traces of his influence across the Pacific, notes that the two men observed the voyage through different eyes, much like the accounts of Lewis and Clark. Cook took care to steer the ship through unknown islands, make charts, order thousands of depth sounds, and study the stars. Banks studied new specimens and learned the native cultures. He immersed himself in Polynesian languages, participated in island rituals, and took Tahitian women as lovers. The two compared their notes and influenced each other. Cook explored topics outside his expertise as a mariner. Banks matured as a scientist and collector. The two had their moments of conflict, particularly Banks' desire to have the ship unnecessarily retrofitted or his attempt to sneak a mistress aboard by disguising her as a man. But Banks was Cook's greatest advocate. He solidified Cook's legacy by dispatching other expeditions upon becoming president of the Royal Society. In Tahiti, the expedition completed its first objective of viewing the transit of Venus on June 3, 1769. Cook then opened sealed orders he was instructed to open only after completing the scientific portion of the trip. It included additional instructions for the Admiralty to search for Terra Australis, where, quote, there is reason to imagine that a continent or land of great extent may be found, unquote. He didn't find Australia during the first voyage, but Cook circumnavigated New Zealand, proving it to be an autonomous cluster of islands. The expedition explored these islands and collected more specimens. Cook continued onward south and east. Not knowing that his expedition was the first European one to enter the coastlines of Terra Australis, he reached Stingray and Bustard Bays and skirted Cape Townshed, on April 19, 1770. Later, at Brush Island, near Bali Point, Cook made the first Western observations of Australia's Aboriginal population. He noticed near the shore, quote, several people upon the sea beach. They appeared to be of very dark or black color, but whether this was the real color of their skin or the clothes they might have, on I know not. The Endeavour anchored and went ashore the continent for nine days. Cook named the landing site Botany Bay in honor of his naturalist discoveries of plant species, 
At this point, the collection was so large that banks feared that special care must be taken or the collection would spoil. The Endeavour continued its mapping voyage of Australia's eastern coast, but the unknown waters proved difficult for Cook and his crew. They narrowly avoided shipwreck on the Great Barrier Reef on June 11, 1770. Hauling the ship off the reef was a daunting undertaking. The crew succeeded, but the ship required seven weeks of repairs. They carried them onto a beach in modern-day Queensland, near the mouth of the Endeavour River. Back on the seas, the Endeavour landed along the southern tip of Australia on Possession Island. His crew hoisted the colors of England there, claiming the entire coastline as British territory. Cook named the region New South Wales, suspecting it to be a considerable island. He was satisfied that they had completed their orders and told the crew to set a course back to England by means of the Indian coast, then south around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. They first entered known waters of New Guinea in August 1770, and their first stop was in the Javanese city of Batavia, where many of his crew members contracted malaria. Despite this bout of illness, they continued steadily toward home. They spotted England 11 months later, in July 1771, and sailed up the English Channel, returning three years after their departure. The Endeavour anchored in the Downs, and Cook went ashore at Deal, Kent. He and his crew returned to great acclaim. Under his command, he prevented the slightest hint of mutiny. Cook maintained the health of the crew throughout the voyage by his inductive logic that a regimen of fresh foods and produce was necessary. As a result, no man died of scurvy during the voyage, perhaps for the first time since transoceanic travel began in the 15th century. He turned over his journals, along with those of Banks, to the Admiralty, who contracted literary critic John Hawksworth to publish an account of the voyage. He was a celebrity among the Royal Society and promoted to the rank of commander. The voyage was a resounding success. Cook understated the difficulties of the first journey to the Admiralty, but modern historians and naval enthusiasts are only beginning to understand the full extent of the complications of his first voyage. His stoic voice permeates his memoirs, but they betray the difficult conditions that were there in the years at sea. Many modern-day hobbyists and sailors have created life-size replicas of the Endeavour, sailing only parts of Hook's voyage, and every single person speaks of the terrible conditions on the boat. The quarters are cramped, and even the captain's quarters, to say nothing of the seamen's quarters. Nausea and seasickness are absolutely omnipresent, and everyone who replicates these journey talks about it. Natural barriers and coral reefs are difficult to avoid even with precise maps, let alone sailing blindly, as Cook did. Terror must have gripped sailors who unfurled the ship's sails from atop the 127-foot-tall mass as the seas rocked and churned below. Cook is credited with the most detailed charting of the South Pacific at the time. He was also the first British explorer to sail the east coast of Australia. But despite the praise of the Admiralty, he was frustrated that he hadn't discovered the mysterious continent, or at least he didn't know that he did, alluded to by geographers. The Royal Society believed Terra Australis to lie farther south than the continent-sized coastline that Cook mapped on his first voyage. Shortly after his return to England, the restless explorer requested a second chance to achieve his goal. He quickly prepared a final version of his journal and revised the charts for publication. Despite the fame that he achieved, Cook had problems launching the second voyage, and that had to do with how his former confidant, Banks, was received by England. The botanist had become a celebrity among the general public for his discoveries. Banks quickly hit the lecture and publicity circuit in England, discussing the scientific and geographic implications of the voyage. To England, it was Banks, not Cook, that was the face of the Endeavour voyage. The young scientist, who wasn't yet 30, even attempted to take command of the second voyage. He had received the Admiralty's approval to make a more robust expedition, 
and to make extensive repairs to the resolution to expand its accommodations and support a larger staff. But the new massive vessel proved too top-heavy. The Royal Navy scrapped the addition because it made the boat unseaworthy. Banks was furious at this, and he recused himself before the second voyage began, leaving Johann Reinhoff Forster and his son George as chief scientists for the voyage. Cook set off again for his second voyage on July 13, 1772, in command of the Resolution, accompanied by the Adventure, commanded by Captain Tobias Fourneau, five days after his son George was born. He departed the English harbor for another multi-year voyage into uncharted waters, even though he had already achieved considerable fame among the British scientific establishment and had been offered a comfortable retirement. The second expedition into the Pacific would be the greatest sea voyage in naval history up to that point. By 1775, the fleet would travel 25,000 leagues into more diverse territories than any naval fleet had ever encountered. This length was nearly three times the equatorial circumference of the Earth. His biographers consider Cook to be at the height of his powers as a navigator and explorer, and as a scientist and leader. Despite traveling into alien waters and risking exposure to foreign diseases, as on the first voyage, none of his men died of scurvy. His naturalists made groundbreaking observations in hydrology, meteorology, glaciology, natural history, and ethnology. Cook decided before the voyage departed that he would operate from two fixed bases in the South Pacific, Tahiti and the Queen Charlotte Sound of New Zealand. Here, he would obtain food, wood, and water in order to sweep the vast parts of the Pacific Ocean, circling the globe in an eastern directions. They stopped in Madeira and the Cape of Good Hope on October 30th to top off their supplies. The Resolution and Adventure then spent four months traveling the 10,000 miles between South Africa and New Zealand. Cook intentionally sailed at a high southern latitude to confirm or deny the existence of the Terra Australis south of New Zealand. His ship was wrapped in fog, dodged icebergs floating from the polar south, at one point sailed in a latitude of 67 degrees, which was within only 75 miles of the still undiscovered Antarctic coastline. Cook described the polar conditions of the Antarctic Circle in vivid detail. He wrote on Christmas Eve, 1774, describing the dangerous environment that refused to yield the hidden land. Here's what he said. Our ropes were like wires. Sails like board or plates of metal and shivers froze fast in the blocks, so that it required our utmost effort to get a topsail down and up. The cold so intense as hardly to be endured. The whole sea in a manner covered with ice, a hard gale and a thick fog. Under all these unfavorable circumstances, it was natural for me to think of returning more to the north, seeing there was no probability of finding land here, nor a possibility of getting farther to the south, and to have proceeded to the east in this latitude would not have been prudent, as well on account of the ice as the vast space of sea we must have left to the north unexplored, a space of 24 degrees of latitude in which a large tract of land might lie, as this point could only be determined by making a stretch to the north. So the two ships expected to lose one another during this portion of the journey, and agreed to meet again in New Zealand. During the separation of the vessels, Forno managed to explore the eastern coast of Tasmania, while Cook explored the remote Dusky Bay on the southwest corner of New Zealand's southern island. In between these bouts of discovery, Cook turned his attention to his crew, keeping them in line with strict dietary discipline and hygiene to prevent an outbreak of disease. He ordered the crew to change and wash their clothes frequently. He implemented a diet of sauerkraut, cabbage, celery, and fresh fruits as it could be attained. The crew spent six weeks recovering. They smoked, fished, drank, repaired ship damage, 
shot exotic animals such as seals, and explored the fjord. The adventure joined the resolution in the fjord on May 18th. The two ships spent the rest of the Southern Hemisphere's winter scouting for the southern continent between New Zealand and South America. They arrived at their second base of operation on Tahiti in August, staying for a month. The expedition then spent time on the mission's other objectives of revisiting discoveries from Cook's first voyage among the Society Island and Tonga. While in Tonga, Forno picked up a young priest named Omai, who asked to be taken to England, curious of the society that produced these extraordinary ships and their exotic crews. Cook writes that the islander was a proper example of these native peoples. He complimented him thus. He has a natural good behavior, which rendered him acceptable to the best company and proper degree of pride, which taught to avoid the society of persons of inferior rank. He has passions of the same kind as other young men, but has judgment enough not to indulge them in an improper excess. The two ships split up in order to investigate the islands independently. Forno and his crew soon departed back to England after ten of his sailors were attacked and killed by Maori Indians and their bodies cannibalized. They returned with Omai to England on July 12, 1774. Cook spent the months of the summer season crossing high latitudes of the Pacific. He reached a record 71 degrees south until the dangers of pack ice, icebergs, and severe cold prevented them from going further. He concluded that no habitable southern continent existed at these latitudes, only a frozen land near the pole. The crew changed course to the Pacific Islands to the north, arriving at Easter Island on March 12th. The crew explored the tropics for the next seven months. They charted islands that were either undiscovered or had been ignored by European sailors for centuries. The resolution stopped at or made passes by the Polynesian and Melanesian archipelagos, New Caledonia, the Friendly Islands, and Tahiti once again. On October 18, 1774, the crew returned to Ship Cove in Queen Charlotte Sound. They restocked provisions of fruits, vegetables, and meat, and prepared to return home a month later. The resolution traveled east to Cape Corn for five weeks, moving with the winds filling their sails. In one day, they managed to travel 183 miles, which was a nautical record. After passing through the Tierra del Fuego on Christmas Day, while his crew enjoyed a feast consisting of geese that they had shot, the ship crossed to the South Atlantic. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Cook discovered South Georgia on January 17th, as well as the South Sandwich Islands. They dipped south to 60 degrees latitude until icebergs once again threatened their ship. The crew, which was by now completely exhausted by the voyage, turned to Cape Town. They reached the South African port on March 22nd. The resolution then crept up the west coast of Africa, stopping at St. Helena, 
then hopped across the Atlantic to locate the Portuguese outpost island of Fernando de Noronha along the coast of Brazil. They arrived one month later, coming to England on July 30th, 1775, to incredible acclaim and a public eager to hear more stories from their voyage. The crew were honored as heroes. Only four crew members of the Resolution died on the long voyage, and none of them to scurvy. But at this point, most serious geographers laid to rest their belief in a southern continent. Upon Cook's return, King George III personally awarded him the rank of post-captain. The Royal Navy granted him an honorary retirement with an attractive sinecure as an officer at the Greenwich Hospital, a permanent home and healthcare facility for disabled sailors. His celebrity now spread across England, and he became the toast of aristocratic society. The House of Lords called him the first navigator in Europe. He became an acquaintance of the famed author James Boswell and Sir John Pringle, president of the Royal Society, which also made him an honorary fellow and awarded him the Copley Gold Medal, an award for outstanding achievement in research in any branch of science. And this was awarded for his practical research in dietetics that prevented any of his sailors from succumbing to scurvy. He posed for an oil portrait by Nathaniel Dance. Cook even managed to see two of his now-grown sons, James and Nathaniel, who followed in his father's footsteps and entered the Portsmouth Naval Academy. But Cook, who was ever the intrepid captain, desired one more discovery voyage. His request was granted when the Royal Society tasked him to find the Northwest Passage. Cook determined to find the route linking the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, which had eluded other navigators for centuries. He was confident that his superb navigational skills and experienced crew and naval instinct would succeed where his predecessors in the British government and merchant community had failed. Cook declared his interest to lead the voyage in a meeting on January 9, 1776, to select the officers for the next expedition. At the time, he merely served as an advisor to the Admiralty, which had drawn up semi-confidential plans to dispatch two ships to search for the passage. When discussion drifted to who would command such a crucial expedition, Cook stood up dramatically and declared he would take command, but only if his companions, Sir Hugh Polliser, Philip Stevens, and John Montague, the Comptroller, Secretary, and First Lord of the Admiralty, respectively, gave their assent. All faint surprise at the retired captain announcing his return to the helm, and they likely anticipated this announcement. They then announced their huzzah to his proclamation. The Northwest Passage would become an English channel, or at least they thought. The resolution departed on July 12, 1776, weeks before news reached England that its American colony thought her king to be tyrannical. Charles Clerk, who had participated on both of Cook's circumnavigations, helmed the discovery. Others on the voyage included a full complement of navigators, surveyors, sailing masters, cooks, landscape painters, and the Society Islander Omai, who was returning home. The ship's holdings included sheep, rabbits, hogs, cattle, and other animals that would provide the officers proper banquets. The ship sailed around the Cape of Good Hope, then across the Indian Ocean at a leisurely clip. While en route to the southern coast of Australia, Cook confirmed the positions of the French Crozet and Kerguelen Islands, even though they put him a month behind his timetable. The expedition then encountered a squall while attempting to reach Queen Charlotte Sound. The Resolution's masts and riggings were damaged in the winter storm, so Cook ordered the ship to harbor in Tasmania to repair the vessel. Clerk and Cook arrived in Ship Cove, New Zealand on February 12, 1777. Here, Cook observed the aboriginal dwellings of the island. He noted with surprise how quickly the islanders could erect their houses, building them, he wrote, on a spot of ground that not an hour before was covered with shrubs and plants. As a proto-anthropologist, he noted the communal stratification of the houses, which had divided the villages into districts of families. 
The two captains realized that they wouldn't be able to travel due north up the Pacific and reach the Northwest Passage in time to spend the bulk of the summer months exploring, thus pushing their explorations to the following year, since sailing the northern coast of Canada at any time except for high summer meant conditions of permanent darkness and temperatures of 60 degrees Fahrenheit below zero, or even worse. They decided to spend the year exploring the Pacific Islands. The expedition reached Tonga by May and spent two months among the islanders. The naturalists collected botanical samples, the painters sketched their landscapes of tropical paradises, and Cook contended with islanders who attempted to steal their exotic animals or trinkets. The captain punished the guilty islanders severely, but he also gifted their chiefs with cattle, horses, and sheep. His crew members looked on at Cook's approach to their timetable in confusion, how he was very laid back in it, and were puzzled by his behavior. This wasn't the disciplinarian cook of naval <coughs> this wasn't the disciplinarian cook of naval legend who strictly maintained the crew's diet and everything else. Rumors and murmurs spread that the captain didn't possess the same level of command or insatiable curiosity as he did in his first two voyages. The crew stayed on the Society Islands until December, not exploring nearby uncharted islands. They returned Omai to his home on the Society Islands, and the ship proceeded north once again in December. They stopped in Bora Bora, then spent December 25th on the Kirit Madi, known then as Christmas Island, in honor of the crew's celebration that day. It held the greatest land area of any coral atoll in the world, in addition to a number of tropical turtles, many of which the crew brought aboard the ship. They observed a solar eclipse on the island, then continued north on January 2nd, 1778. The Resolution and Discovery sailed due north and encountered a large archipelago filled with white sandy beaches, lush rainforests, and volcanic peaks. Islanders sailed out on canoes to greet the explorers. The ships anchored off the island of Kauai, which Cook later discovered to be a part of the Hawaiian Islands, which he was the first European to visit. He named the islands the Sandwich Islands after the fourth Earl of Sandwich, also the acting First Lord of the Admiralty. They stayed for two weeks, trading ship nails to the natives, who had never seen an iron object before, and in return they got copious amounts of pork and potatoes. The islanders bowed down before Cook when he stepped ashore, and to his surprise, they understood the language of the Tahitians. He correctly observed that there were cultural and ethnic ties among the Polynesian peoples, despite thousands of miles of ocean separating the expanse of islands. And later on, ethnographers and those who did genetic mapping of the Polynesian islands were able to determine that Thanks to their intrepid spirit and sailing ability, Polynesians were able to travel thousands of miles across the Pacific thousands of years ago. But what Cook didn't observe was the danger that he was in for the natives believing him to be divine. Cook was both a symbol of praise, but also a symbol of scorn, and this confusion would later cost him his life. The crew departed two weeks later to explore the coast of the North American continent. Twenty years would pass before Lewis and Clark visited the region. Few European traders passed through this area, although natives filled the forest. They arrived on March 7th, near today's Oregon coast. The ships continued north in an attempt to reach the Northwest Passage early in the summer season. Indians they encountered along the way were friendly and marveled at their metal goods. They traded nails for animal furs and timber, providing crew members with warmer clothes and new ship masts. The Resolution Discovery departed April 26th and began their crawl along the Alaskan coast. Cook didn't anticipate the endless length of the Alaskan coastline, which was more than triple that of Great Britain. Nor did he expect to encounter tobacco-smoking Inuit peoples who would engage in trade with Russians. This indicated a close proximity to the Eurasian continent. The ships passed through the Bering Strait in July, 
where only 50 miles of sea separated the two continents from each other. They continued north with a reward of 20,000 pounds on their minds, hoping to find the Northwest Passage before the exploration season ended, and then a short trip back to England on the other side. But their hopes were dashed when they reached a latitude of 70 degrees, and the ship encountered a wall of ice 12 feet high that extended across the horizon. Cook realized that further travels across northern Canada in the approaching autumn would mean icebergs, pack ice, gale force winds, heavy fog, and likely death. He turned the ship southward to winter in Hawaii and make another attempt the following year. Cook suffered from a stomach ailment this time, which his crew members believed led to further irrational behavior, such as his insistence that they eat walrus meat, which they claimed to be inedible. The ships returned to Hawaii in early 1779 to winter there. They coasted along the coast of Maui and traded with natives on canoe, but didn't stop. Cook instead chose to land on the island of Hawaii. We're first talking about the collection of the Hawaiian islands, but he's going to Hawaii proper, which was the massive island to the south. Cook stepped ashore and met the natives with confidence. He had conducted diplomacy with islanders on dozens of occasions over the course of his career, from New Zealand to the Arctic, and didn't expect any surprises. The process was usually a simple swapping of trinkets, followed by Cook enjoying the ceremony and hospitality of the host culture. His crew would receive fresh meat and fruit, and, much to his disapproval, encounters with island women. But this time, a number of unfortunate things happened. Cook didn't know that this trip ashore would be his last. The first thing that happened was worsening relations with his crew. He was inconsistent on his policy of allowing women to come aboard the ship. He first prohibited it, fearing that venereal diseases would spread throughout the islands, but later reversed the decision. Second, he reduced the crew's ration of rum in order to reserve it for the Arctic and replace it with sugarcane beer. Tampering with the crew's daily rum ration, which was 70 milliliters given to every sailor at midday, and the Royal Navy's most entrenched tradition, was always the surest path to mutiny on a British vessel. The crew was in a foul mood, and bad weather battered the ship's sails and riggings. Cook was similarly brusque with his officers and seamen, barking orders instead of maintaining his characteristic even temperament. A second unfortunate event was an ill-time encounter with the islanders in which Cook unknowingly interfered with their religious celebrations. The fleet arrived in a bay during the Hawaiian Harvest Festival of Worship for the Polynesian god Lono. To the islanders, the resolution resembled many of their artifacts of worship. Its rotation around the islands before landfall furthermore resembled their ceremonial procession, causing some historians to believe that this is the reason the islanders deified Cook. The fleet spent a month on the island replenishing their supplies. In spite of their typical warm relations, Cook unknowingly ran afoul of their traditions. His ship left Hawaii in February to once again explore the northern Pacific, but the foremast of the resolution fell into disrepair, and they were forced to return once again. This time, things went really badly. On the night of February 13th, the crew noticed that a cutter boat was missing. The islanders had stolen his vessel, so Cook implemented his policy of taking hostages until it was returned. Tensions escalated between the crew and the islanders, possibly, some have argued, because the season of Lono had ended and the natives took his return to be an ominous and unwelcome sign. Cook attempted to take the King of Hawaii hostage, but the abduction was botched and resulted in the death of another Hawaiian chieftain. Angry islanders threw stones at him and his ten men who had come ashore. The seamen fired muskets in return, but retreated to their boats in panic. In the ensuing battle, Captain Cook was stoned, clubbed, then stabbed at the water's edge. He and four of his men were killed. The islanders, perhaps feeling remorse or still holding respect for the navigator-turned-god, gave him full funeral rites reserved for chiefs and elders. 
They then disemboweled him and cleaned his bones for preservation. They returned the rest of his remains to the crew, who buried him at sea. The crew departed, and the voyage continued despite Cook's death. Clerk assumed command of the fleet and made a final attempt at crossing the Northwest Passage that summer. They reached as far north as Cook's record, but encountered equally insurmountable ice walls. The ships returned south. Clerk died soon after, on August 22nd, due to his tuberculosis. The Resolution and Discovery abandoned their attempts to explore the eastern coast of Asia and retired from their two-year journey. They begin the long return to England and arrive home in October 1780. Captain James King commanded one of the vessels and sailed down to complete Cook's account of the third voyage. He compiled Cook's account, which comprised the first two of its three volumes. The third was written by his own pen. Upon its delayed release, a collection and its folio atlas were a massive bestseller in Europe. The public gobbled it up. It sold out in three days, followed by five more printings in 1784 alone. Cook's account was translated into German, French, Swedish, Dutch, Russian, and Italian by the end of the century. His atlas was the most accurate of its time and became required reading on any lengthy commercial or naval oceanic voyage. It drew upon the thousands of sounds he and his crew made during their voyages, which explored farther north, 70 degrees, and farther south, 71 degrees, than any other expedition in history. Cook was now immortalized in the public conscious, but the captain had already immortalized himself in the lands of the Pacific. The leagues covered by Cook on the third voyage are evidenced by the large number of inlets and bays around the world that today bear his name, from the South Pacific Islands to the subarctic regions. He named many of Alaska's distinct geographical features near the coast, such as Mount Edgecombe, the volcano on the Alexander Archipelago, Cape Edgecombe, Mount Fairweather and Glacier Bay National Monument, and Cape Suckling. His explorations also secured British dominance in the Industrial Revolution. Cook charted the South Pacific and Australia, opening up new trade lines and colonial footholds. Britain expanded its economy into the South Pacific. Its empire now flanked all other nations. With their ships came soldiers, missionaries, traders, muskets, smallpox, factories, whalers, alphabets, books, and the English language. Australia changed hands from a confederation of aborigines to British military might. New Zealand and Australia became outposts of Western culture on the far side of India and China. They were literally Europe in Asia. Today, the islands that he discovered have integrated into the modern world. The Aleutians in Alaska and the inhabitants of Cook Islands in the distant South Pacific were unknown to explorers of the 18th century. These places are now ports of call for cruise ships and host respectable rugby teams. Tourists flock by the hundreds of thousands to these outposts at the edge of the world. Their isolation makes such locations as the Cook Islands attractive places for offshore banking, tax shelters, and pearl, marine, and fruit exports. Cook gave the 19th century world a common language and integrated trade system. He also gave it accurate maps, mountains of scientific data, and dozens of undiscovered islands. The globalized world of the 21st century is in many ways a result of the quiet, inquisitive explorer of the 18th century. But with Cook's discoveries also came the dark side of globalization— the death or marginalization of native languages, along with disease and crime, and the stamping out of native customs and practices, although some, like cannibalism, were best to fall to the wayside. As a result, some locals have vandalized Cook's monuments in these islands, and some don't allow replicas of his first ship to harbor in their bays. But in an interesting coda to his life, Cook has helped revitalize these native cultures. Horowitz notes that the writings of Cook and his men their artwork, and the artifacts I collected from these indigenous cultures are the best remains of the life and customs of Pacific societies before European colonialism. 
Native people are using these sources to reconstruct their own arts and practices. They're once again practicing such skills as canoe building, tattooing, and traditional dances. So, to wrap things up, Benjamin Franklin made a correct judgment when he gave a free pass to this explorer and self-educated scientist. Cook's eye for observation managed to preserve the cultures that he discovered. The captain, who was once seen as an agent of imperialism and destruction of native culture, became its chief restorer. All right, well, that's all in this episode. In the final episode of the series, we're going to be jumping to the early 20th century and looking at the voyage of Ernest Shackleton and his crew. See you there. All right, so that is all for the episode today. Once again, I want to start things off by thanking the spy masters of History Unplugged. I'll explain what that is in a second. Our spy masters include Bill Ivey, Moondoggy from Ohio, Tom from Ohio, Ryan Gillen, Rob from Chicago, Nick Brooks, Michael from New York, Carl from Norway, Josh Reddick, Jennifer French Lee, Jay Carrington, McCraze, Salvador Sanchez, David Santi, Chris C., and Baron Fraser. If you'd like to support the show, there's some very easy ways to do so. First, go to the site halfpricehistory.com. I've worked out an arrangement with a lot of the authors who've appeared on this show, and you can go there and get their books for 50% off. All you have to do is go to halfpricehistory.com and enter the promo code UNPLUGGED at checkout. Second, please leave a review and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player of choice, whether Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever. Third, join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and search for History Unplugged. There, you can talk with other fans of the show about recent episodes, what you liked, what you didn't like. Also, I have exclusive content there, such as live streams, where I do live versions of podcast episodes where you can leave feedback as I'm talking, and I will address it on air. Last, and I think this is the best, is to join our membership program, the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were George Washington's spies during the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the membership program for History Unplugged. If you go to patreon.com slash unplugged, you can join the membership program at three levels. If you join at the scout level, you'll get all 400 episodes of History Unplugged absolutely ad-free and early access to new episodes. If you join at the second level, the intelligence officer level, get all the stuff that scouts get along with bonus episodes. There's currently about 40 of them, including series on Audie Murphy and Operation Long Jump about the Nazi attempt to assassinate FDR, Churchill, and Stalin in 1943. Finally, if you join at the spymaster level, you'll get a shout out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You get a three pack of hardcover history books and you can find out what those are if you go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Finally, you can ask me a question about history on absolutely any topic on earth and I will research it and devote an entire episode to your question. Probably about 30% of the questions in the archive for the show have been based on these sorts of questions. So there you go. Go to patreon.com slash unplugged to learn more. All right. Well, that is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.